Hello podcasters, still on the road of my China trip and today coming to you from the capital city of Beijing. A Canadian expat was kind enough to share his home with us during our time in the city. A little bit of a unique accommodation this time. Our friend here works for the Canadian Border Services, so he lives inside of the embassy. Great to be home. Actually, we found out that's a myth. Embassies do not technically count as home soil, so we're still very much in China. We spent the last three days in the northern city of Harbin, which has sister city agreement with Edmonton of all places, dating back several decades. The conditions are cold and harsh, but they sure do love their hockey up here. Most of the greatest players in Chinese history come from the city, so I guess we can consider them the Chinese city of champions. My guest this week is a very well-known man around town in Edmonton. Jesse Lipscomb is an actor, producer, musician, entrepreneur, and former elite-level track athlete, once on track for the Olympic Games. Most recently, Jesse's become a household name for his Make It Awkward campaign, an anti-discrimination movement that took shape in response to a drive-by racial attack on Jesse himself. The efforts of this campaign culminate this weekend from February 1 to 3rd, 1st to 3rd, that was weird, at the Make It Awkward Summit in Edmonton. The MIA Summit 18 will bring together global leaders champion, champion, championing inclusivity, diversity, and love in order to disrupt the status quo and create lasting societal change. The summit has an incredible lineup of speakers, musicians, other performers. Uh, don't miss this one. Get all the information at miasummit.com. I had a real pleasure chatting with Jesse, who's just a straight-up awesome human being, and we had fun babysitting his boy, Indiana, during the episode. So, without further ado, hope you enjoy my chat with Jesse Lipscomb. Sitting here today with Indiana Lipscomb and his personal assistant Jesse Lipscomb. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little bit of a fun real life hiccup, which is nice. Sometimes you have kids, and sometimes they get sick. Daycare is wonderful. Yeah. So, what, what's the rule? If they throw up uh, on the way to school, you can't bring them. To yeah, school? like so, if they throw up, they have to be throw up free for twenty four hours. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, you know, and I'm hoping since his throw up was early enough, yeah. if he doesn't throw up again. Uh, we might be able to put him in daycare tomorrow, but right. there's a good chance he throws up during this podcast. So do you, <laughs> that'd be fun. Yeah. Do you, Do you think any parents like bend the rules or fib? Like I oh, threw up like 20 hours ago, and uh, I think 100. percent I think that's probably why they always get sick there. But it's you know half a dozen of one. It's the you get the immunity, and you yeah. know when they're in like grade one and two, like my other two boys. They've never been sick after grade one, so yeah, we'll see how it goes. That's good. So I want to start off by saying Jesse Lipscomb, actor, producer, entrepreneur, musician, athlete. What did I miss? Uh, just a, a husband and a father and a yes. good friend and a, yeah. and a loyal, trustworthy dude. All the things that aren't necessarily written about you on the internet, but will come through in this format, which well, is yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a big part of what I like to do on this podcast is show people frameworks or, or specific circumstances of how someone got to where they are. Someone would look at you and, and, and think, wow, like how do you even get to that point of doing so many great things that you're so excited about? Right. So to give them context, can you talk a little bit about sort of your family growing up in Alberta and what got you to where you are now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, uh, 
I'll go from both sides. So my mom's side and my dad's side. My dad's side came up through uh, Oklahoma. Uh, they came up in the early 1900s when a lot of uh, black settlers were looking for land. They were fleeing like Jim Crow times back in the late 1800s. Uh, and they settled in a, in a little town or uh, village-ish. It was actually like a collection of farms called Amber Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, that was up by Athabasca. And it was all black settlers, which was weird for a lot of folks. It was just like a black group, like city, and then everyone yeah. else is just farm. Just transplanted. Yeah. There Absolutely. in the middle of Alberta. <laughs> and so they, uh, that's that's where my dad's side. He was actually born in Amber Valley. There's a very famous baseball team, uh, the Amber Valley baseball team, where they used to play all the major leaguers and always kick their butt yeah. over and over. And uh, some really fun, you know, black history through there. My great great auntie, her name's Bessie Coleman. She's uh, the first black lady to fly an airplane. Um, just just after Amelia Earhart at that, too, which is really cool. Yeah. And then my mom's side, uh, uh, the Carolinas, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, Rolly Miles and Marianne Miles. Rolly Miles is a well-known name here in Edmonton, uh, mm-hmm. CFL Hall of Fame, and you know all-around great dude in the city. Um, they moved to Edmonton, and you know they basically were like uh, like black royalty here in Edmonton. <laughs> Everybody who came through the city, yeah. uh, if they were like a notable black character figure, they would be like, you have to re- meet Marianne and Rolly. Like Muhammad right. Ali would come through. Yeah. You know, Coltrane would come through. They always set up things. Is that when Ali them. fought? Uh, didn't Ali fight Semenko? He did. Charity yeah, was that's, at the that's time. exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it's, they got pictures of that all throughout their house, which is really neat. So um, you know, my 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 uncle, his name's Brett Miles. He's a saxophone player. He's played with Miles Davis, Taylor Dane, Michael mm-hmm. Jackson. Uh, even my cousin Rolly Pemberton, known as Cadence Weapon, he's a pretty well-known hip-hop artist, poet uh, in Canada and around the world. So it's been a lot of people following passion and following their dreams, uh, not as a thing you had to do, just a thing that we did. It just wasn't a, it wasn't a, you can't do a thing. It just, of course you do stuff. And right. Do as much of it as you can and do it great. Do you think that's part genetics of something that just pushes you guys to, to want to do more? Or do you think it's just the family culture that's been passed down generation to generation i mean i guess it's a little hybrid of both you know it's not that everyone was an artist by any means but one thing that i can see if i look across most of the people in our family is that they uh everything they do they really put their heart and soul into it you know my my uh, uh my sister she she's a painter and a doula my mom and dad are both it's artists a doula. a doula is a birthing coach so oh, okay. uh, midwife would be someone who births the baby but yeah. a doula from like the moment of conception until like obviously 10 months even after you have a baby they're mm-hmm. there like as yeah. a coach teaching you what to do what to awesome. expect I love when I learn something new early in the day it's 9 a.m. Yeah, there you go. There's the, new. yeah so that's what a doula does you, okay. be, you become donor certified first you take your course and then uh, you have to be present at a number of different births and then you become an expert in birth coaching and helping people through the process fantastic yeah. and I think you have a brother too right I, that's right my yeah. brother is a uh, financial planner and the and a phenomenal producer like he yeah. makes some amazing music as well so I read somewhere that you you really followed them a lot when you were younger. You're the youngest. Ever? I am. Yeah. yeah, I am. So they were big examples for you, and you wanted to do what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, I was also a little brother, so I'm yeah. sure it was very annoying from what I hear. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, my brother, and si- my sister took dancing, so I took dancing. My brother was a soccer. I did soccer. They did track and field. I finished up in track and field. Basically, whatever they did, I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister, you know, if I had to play with her, I had to learn how to braid hair and do makeup, and so that's <laughs> great for my three sons. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you're you're a really good multifaceted athlete when you're younger. When did you really start specializing in track and field? Um, so track actually started pretty early. I mean, I was early gymnastics. So I was probably you know I went to like junior Olympics when I was like six. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I grew. And gymnastics wasn't the best piece. But right. track and field around eight or nine. But I did every event <laughs> in track at the beginning. 
And my end to just being a high jumper was more of a process of elimination. Right. I started losing at other events, and high jump was the last one that I didn't lose at. Because if you were to look at my body type, high jump's not the one I'm built for. I no. should probably be doing decathlon right. uh, or something else. But it just so happened that the last one that I didn't lose at was high jump. So I said, hey, I'm a high jumper. Yeah, <laughs> that right. Was, yeah. That's funny because it, that used to happen a lot more like to past generations. So like, well, this is the work you do because that's the only work to do, right? right? And it's right. Like, but now we have all these choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so you pursued that straight through into college and um, and were pretty successful. An unfortunate accident in 04? Yeah, I had a, I think so. Mine's a little foggy as it turns out. No, but yeah, uh, yeah it, it was a, I had a, it, it presented as a, as a stroke. I uh, ended up being more of a TIA and then found out later on that it's something the street term is beauty parlor syndrome, but I don't know the real term. Basically, the where dura. Does, where does that the, come from? The dura in the back of my neck. Yeah. So whenever I have my head up at this angle, it's like a 45 degree angle, like you would when you high jump. Yeah. Uh, then the dura in the back of my brain get kinked like a hose. Yeah. And so then all the blood pressure goes through and it basically causes stroke-like symptoms. Uh, we didn't know all the details of it at the time, so it just mm-hmm. looked like right. strokes happened. So then that was the high jump career end. Yeah. yeah. What, what was going through your head at that time? Uh, not a lot, really. I was just confused. It was really weird because I remember I took an, I had a headache and I, I took a knee and then I was trying to stand up and I couldn't stand. And then uh, I asked my coach, I'm like, is my right eye open? And she's like, yes. And it was like eclipsing, like an eclipse of a sun right yeah. over my right eye. And yeah. then also my speech started to slur and then went to the ER and it was really <laughs> quick in and out. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a blur in the sense of what that, what does that mean? I never thought it meant I was done track. Uh, my coaching team decided to step away right. and kind of left me on my own. Right. Uh, and so I tried to do it on my own afterwards. But it's, man, nobody does this without a team. There's a reason why you have a team. You okay. know, I mean, obviously the athlete or the actor or whatever is the star, but mm-hmm. you need a team to do this stuff. But on a macro level, what were you thinking in terms of like, am I going to be able to high jump again? What am I going to do if this track thing is it doesn't see itself out? No, not really. I, I've never really had this like what... Well, okay, so maybe on a macro level, I've yeah. always had this what will I be when I grow up. Right. But on like a mini macro level of like if high jump doesn't work, I was never worried because mm-hmm. there's just so much available to do and try. And I wasn't one of the athletes where I am a high jumper. Without high jump, what am I? Mm-hmm. I, I was. I love high jump. Yeah. Uh, if anything, I could pick. I'm like I'm an artist. I'm a performer, mm-hmm. and I'll do it on any platform. So high jump was a chance to perform mm-hmm. amongst you know thousands of people. Uh, same thing with acting. Same thing with public speaking. It's just that ability to be there and right. you know turn what my thoughts and feelings are into something articulate that hopefully affects people in the way it affects me. That's mm-hmm. the hope. Yeah. So you've been acting and doing a bunch of other things in tangent with with the that's high right. Jump. Yeah. Okay. So you're like, well, that's gone, but I can still do all these other things. Yeah. There was no but. It was literally just a shift. It okay. was like this is a. I mean, like, literally, if you're driving somewhere and you hit a detour, yeah, like, you're not like, oh, man, like, you just yeah. go, you just go the other direction. That happens to me on 142nd in Stony. Yeah. you know, because yeah. if you're going yeah. to the white mic, that's you right. either go straight or you go left. That's I right. just follow the flow of the traffic. It, that's right. Exactly. That's a really good way to put it. Okay, <laughs> I understand now. Right. Um, so then what did you, what did you do next in terms of getting into, like, what was your next role acting? What was your next job producing? Yeah, let's see. So after track finished, you know, I did, I did focus uh, into the film world a little heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things too, I started film when I was 14. Uh, I got a, uh, really, really 
meaty role with Sidney Poitier. I played his son in a movie called Children of the Dust. Got nominated for an Emmy. It was a good start into, yeah. the, into the TV world. <laughs> was that, did you think that made it more challenging or did that just make you more hungry? Um, like, no, you know? I'd say it would be more challenging because I did get a lot of roles early when I started and it was just kind of off of that show plus being like a cute teenager. Right. Um, but it wasn't a lot on skill. Yeah. Did you hit that awkward phase too? Uh, awkward, ugly face. I think I think it happened before I started. Uh-huh. Like so, uh, like I didn't like the super long gangly arms and right. chiclet teeth. <laughs> like I, I kind of grew at like a pretty even pace. I never That's had good. a big big growth spurt. <laughs> but after I came back from university, I thought uh, I wanted to get back into film, mm-hmm. and I wasn't the same kid, and I also didn't have any real skills. Right. So it was just no after no after no after no. Right. And so that was the time where I had to decide: Do I really like this, or did I just like that little bit of of limelight? Mm-hmm. And I do love it. So then I started to learn the craft a lot more, yeah. get better at it. And then it became a little more difficult, but good. What was the process of learning that craft? Did you get a coach? Like yeah, I mean, track? yeah, things you say very similar. I mean, there's uh, you train every day like you would for any sport, you know, like um, uh, just film and TV is, is the art of, of creating real connections. It's not about playing a connection or pretending. Right. So basically every interaction you have with every human being and being able to be open available to them and connected to them and learning from them uh, is kind of like the everyday kind of training mm-hmm. uh, picking up little idiosyncrasies of why things make you feel a certain way but then of course there's different courses you could take which I did and and, and mentoring under people which I, which I did um, and that kind of stuff definitely helped as well and then the more work you do and then producing <coughs> and then writing and kind of getting your hands in every piece of the craft that you love so you can understand it on a on a larger scale it's kind of the process there's no here's how you become a successful artist which is really neat, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's many ways to do it. You just have to do it. And so it's just been a constant, um, you know, putting in the little work to make sure that I'm making myself just a touch better every day. Right. Yeah. You said something there that actually flips one of the questions I was going to ask you. You said that when you're acting, you're it's actually emoting and having general, genuine interactions mm-hmm. with people. I was going to act. I was going to ask if acting ever fell into your personal non-acting life where you're 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 having an inner everyday interaction and you all of a sudden you're like why am i like i'm just in this in this schema of like acting and yeah, I'm like yeah playing yeah. it up like am i doing that is this right is this wrong but i guess it would go the other way too. yeah i mean it is i mean there are times where film does bleed into the real life uh you know there's movies where i've had accents and i've been working on it for a long period of time and all of a sudden out of nowhere they just right. show up right uh that's like when you're talking to someone yeah. for like a couple days and and you start pulling their accent oh well that happened he, to me in ireland did it okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 especially yeah. as you had more beer though uh so this is a uh, indy george is going to come join us pull up a chair yeah right indy. <laughs> let's talk that's me yeah so you know there's been some where i've played like really horrible people for a long time yeah and then i was you know i kind of just became a little bit more recluse a little less jesse uh and i didn't notice as much but my partner definitely did right so yeah they do bleed into your regular life did they were you really competitive as an athlete yeah i mean as a human for sure you know and it's it's not so much about beating no, it's about beating people. That's mm-hmm. real. Yeah. But it is really about like doing what I think is my absolute best. Right. So my standards for sure are on a pretty high level for myself. Yeah. Um, but if you know, if I did my best and I thought I did my best and I lost, I'm okay with that. Right. That's why you know being six in the world at best was okay. Yeah. I couldn't beat the other people. I just I couldn't do it. Yeah. So good. <laughs> um, was that ever a problem when it came to acting in terms of competing? 
um, on the stage or you know behind the camera in front of the camera no again so I mean obviously there's a competition that exists when you're auditioning right right uh, but again it's not it is it might be me versus you but truly it's me being able to do like land it and connect and be as genuine as humanly possible um, so that's one piece but then on stage or when you're actually in front of a camera it is about collaborating mm -hmm. my goal is to make sure that we connect right so I don't want to like outshine someone that would make the scene horrible yeah. right I want to really make sure I'm available to them so that we can work with each other right. and that, that's when magic happens on, on, the, on the screen as I work more in film I notice you know things that actors do it's a far more complex uh, skill craft than anyone gives it credit for mm -hmm. what you know what has surprised you along the way in terms of learning that craft well the one thing is it's, there's so much to learn and some of the best I mean it's one of those games of imitation too like you want to take from some of the best actors in the world and then and then you know make it your own but there it, there, there are so many pieces to being real mm -hmm. in general and, and, I, and I even mean that in the sense that this is a little bit of a uh, of a tangent, but no problem. Uh, you know, oftentimes my own nature and how I am doesn't come across as genuine, and that's just me being real. Right. Like uh, a lot of times, people uh, take my my positivity and love and like gregariousness as as being put on, like right. you're always on. Yeah. But it's it's literally who I am, yeah. uh, and it is genuine. But it's an interesting thing to see that even in being genuine, it can look not genuine. Right. And so like you, all these layers of like when you're acting as well, just because we have this idea of what genuine is, doesn't mean that's necessarily genuine. Right. I can play that, right. which would be less genuine than who I actually am. And she's getting this wormhole of figuring out who your characters are and what levels of real life and. It's just such a fun game. <laughs> and it's so fun because you become so empathetic and sympathetic for individuals that you might not have because it's not that you, you know they say, put your, why don't you step into someone else's shoes for a bit? Right. But when you when you jump into a character, you step into their shoes for a, you be, you, you are them for like a month. Right. So even if they're the quote unquote villain, you can, you can understand why they see things the way they see them. And all of a sudden you start to feel for other people in different ways. And it really does, I think, help me deal with the world uh, in, a, in a different light because mm -hmm. every, everyone's truth there's a reason yeah. they're doing it it makes sense you know you understand more pieces of the human puzzle yeah, right? yeah, you yeah, see yeah, more yeah. of the whole picture absolutely um, I was going to say that you know the, the people thinking that you're not being genuine that at the end of the day is their problem right and you know in Taoism you, you don't let what other people do affect exactly. you yeah, but yeah, if yeah. you're that I think it's consistency right if you're that consistent mm -hmm. then people finally realize like oh okay he's actually like that yeah, and then yeah, people yeah. tell me they thought I was a prick yeah. at first yeah. the first couple times and then they're like no no that's just who he is and he's actually nice yeah exactly I think, yeah. I think yeah. You know? yeah yeah I think exactly <laughs> no it's it is very true I mean what other people think doesn't really matter and it doesn't change who I am, uh, of course. It doesn't matter, because if someone doesn't think I'm a good actor, um, I'm not gonna get the role. So that, that, that matters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, for yeah. just, you know, being like open and honest with who you are. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. What's been your favorite role you've played and what's been your most challenging role? And uh, they've been the same thing. Yeah, yeah, no, my favorite role actually was my very first role I ever did on stage. Mm -hmm. And that was just recently. So I've never, I've only done, I've only acted on stage once. I did a musical uh, stage play called uh, John Ware. That's what happens. So it's redecorating. He's redecorating the house. Yes, uh, John Ware reimagined is what it was called, and uh, I, it was actually kind of similar to the story of when my father came uh, to Amber Valley. Uh, John Ware was the, one of the first black cowboys 
I say black cowboys. He was one of the first cowboys. Yeah. Uh, that term. This is a really interesting story, though. Yeah, go, I mentioned that to you, right? Go, go into it. If yeah. You yeah. So cowboy uh, back in the day was always. My son is awesome. He just he's I, got I wish, energy. He I wish we had a video of this yeah. podcast because oh, yeah. he's throwing <laughs> he's throwing DVDs and and you know just doing as much quiet work as possible. Uh, so the term cowboy, uh, often uh, back in the derogatory days, which still exists now, but boy was a term you would use to uh, a full-grown man regardless of the age. And, and like the, the ranch hands were the real ones who dealt with the horses, and, and the black men were cowboys. But as cowboys become a little bit more famous for how amazing they were riding uh, in the rodeos, that term became more popular and everyone became a cowboy. Right. So John Ware was a cowboy who came up here in the late 1800s. He actually uh, he brought irrigation to Alberta. Uh, Bighorn, uh, what is it, steer as well? He brought them up here. He basically taught farmers how to farm the dry, arid lands, mm-hmm. and became you know, one of the people who brought the stampede to Calgary. He was an infamous, like Jesse James of Canada. Uh, so I played him, right. uh, larger than life cowboy, and uh, and it was a musical, and it was such an amazing experience because there's so much history existing in it that right. was part of my own history. Right. And yeah, it hit really close to home. Super close to home. See, I didn't grow up in Alberta, but like, why isn't? And maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but is that taught in school? All that history? Well, no. That's super come, interesting. Let's come on now. Is it taught at school? I um, mean, yeah, I think it's taught right after they spend. I think the the month on uh, uh, the American slavery. Okay. Uh, then they do a lot about uh, truth and reconciliation and the uh, in, indigenous <laughs> people in Canada and the real stories there. And then I think they do. No, it's You're not. Being facetious. Yes, of course I am. No, they don't. The stories aren't told. This is the problem. This is what we need to change in the world. Right. You can't really uh, understand and feel for a people you don't know or don't understand. Without knowledge is often fear, which causes a lot of the problems. Right. No, it's not. And that's why they're important to be told. Would your career ever take a, a, a left turn down to being a professor, teaching courses? Because um, you're a great public speaker. You're engaging, and I, and I think you get information across in a, in a really poignant way. I do love uh, teaching. It's one of the things... I love teaching, uh, but I, I don't know if at this stage it would make sense. And it's because of the uh, amount of commitment uh, that a teacher and a prof has to have right. for a uh, extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to do so, I, a lot of other things would have to not exist. Right. Um, but I do kind of like to, like I, like I guess teach from time to time at different universities, different uh, econ classes, but I do kind of like to take that role when I can just in life with right. me, right? You know? And I mean, just like what we're doing right now. This you're is, teaching my audience. And right back at you. That's yeah. what you do. I mean, you're, you're bringing subjects to your audience and mm-hmm. I think the whole like idea of what a teacher is, um, is a little bit bigger and grander in that right. scheme. You have um, more responsibility too, right? Mm-hmm. To, you know, you're really taking charge of these people's future. In yeah. Terms of what you can turn a student off an entire subject if you have one bad course. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. I, I was know. I always remember that I would always look up my professors on rate my prof before deciding to take a course because it could be the best sounding course in the world, but if yeah. you're not a bad professor, mm-hmm. you're just not going to enjoy it. You're going to shut down. But it, it can yes, be something yeah. that's like mediocre and kind of like cultural psychology or something like that. But this prof is the best, five out of five. Like, yeah, right? yeah, and you yeah, take yeah. it, you love it, you get like you kill it, right? Yeah, psych was my major things. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. Like could be a random boring course like cultural psychology, which is what I took. Let me tell you I'll tell you a story about school real quick. I did uh so when I went to school in Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, that's where uh, Martin Luther King went to school, Spike Lee, Samuel Jackson. Uh, it's an all male uh, school 
they call, they call it the Black Ivy League, the HBCU. Uh, so it's all black. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's not, Are there any white? Yeah, you can go, but it's a historically black college and university, right. right? So it was there back when you know it was segregation wasn't the thing. So we'll create our own amazing stuff. Right. We did have a uh, we had two white guys. One was a kicker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was he Australian too? No, he wasn't. That's becoming a thing. I know. That's right. <laughs> uh, and the other one was uh, was an academic. But I remember, okay, so it was my freshman year, and I saw a course called um, Urban Planning. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know what urban planning was then. I was like, oh, dope. This is going to be like a school, like how to be like super urban. <laughs> so I went into the class, and then uh, the prof was like, the Central Business District is like, what is this course? <laughs> then I couldn't get out of it. But the teacher was awesome, awesome. And I, like, it, I yeah. started to love like planning and building and urban and the whole idea of how cities sprawl and gentrification. It's addictive, right? Oh, totally. It's a really cool course. Never would have ever if I knew what it was. I was like, oh, dude, I'm going into urban planning. It's going to be the dopest class ever. <laughs> it was so wrong. But just to the point where teachers right. make it. Like, and he was Gro- growing up in Edmonton too, not necessarily that urban. To start yeah, with, I mean, right? you know, it's it's funny, like, because it's a lot of people would assume that as well. But I mean, we have our pockets, right? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, my family was from the states uh, and uh, also from a predominantly black area. Although I lived in one of the whitest areas ever, which is Saint Albert. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little bit of both. You know yeah. what I mean? But definitely, I mean, being a young you, athlete, you and traveling. Yeah, me again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, a couple. We've got a Blair well, McFarlane. Yeah, you guys would almost be the same age. Yeah, he's just like two years older. Him do and you his, guys know each other? We do, and his sister and I know each other uh, a little bit better. Right. Uh, we ran track together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the St. Albert the Saint Albert squad, we had Tyrone Henry, great basketball player, banker, Blair McFarlane. He owns Red Square and a yeah. bunch of bar- bowers downtown. We got a Ginla. Nice. Uh, yeah, St. Albert, <laughs> we, we did well. <laughs> So what was your most challenging role? Getting back to the the plan here. Yeah, yeah. Most challenging role, I'd say, was being a dad. Being no, a dad. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, most challenging role. I mean, they're all they all are challenging in their own way. But I think I think I did a mo- I did a movie called It's Not My Fault and I Don't Care Anyway, which actually uh, I pro- I produced it as well, mm-hmm. uh, and it got Alan Thicke. It was Alan Thicke's last feature film that he did, and he just got nominated for a Canadian Screen Award for it yesterday, which was the 16th of January. Um, well, congrats to yeah, him. Yeah, so, so exactly, which is really fun. And that show was one where I played like a a villain with. Like some real like human characteristics, but also had a, an accent that was mixed with Jamaican, Irish, and Nigerian. Um, Sounds and, like me when I try to do any accent. Yeah, so they all kind of <laughs> meld together. So secret here is I kind of made one up on purpose yeah. so that no like real dialect could pick it apart. That makes sense. Yeah, so I didn't I didn't want anyone to be like that's not truly either right. of them. So I made one up, but right. to do that for an entire show as a lead was a challenge while still trying to be real. You yeah. Know? yeah. What did you learn from uh, Alan? Um, I should say Alan Thick because he's so notable that he deserves both his names yeah his yeah well it's interesting so alan so he passed about maybe three four months after we did our film release in whistler not even that maybe two or three weeks after um but he was he was like my hollywood mentor whenever i was in la that's who i would sit with and chat and one thing for him was he lived he lived life like the idea of like oh i don't want to do that tomorrow don't let tomorrow's mess up your today's right you know that at any chance he was living it fully he was a great dad uh you know loved his boys so much carter his, uh, his youngest son would stay with us all the time when he was here mm-hmm. and uh just like he was just a as, as famous as he was as well known as he was all over the world he was a dad first yeah. and really enjoyed life and he really made his home his sanctuary as one thing he told me he's like I don't care where I go in the world any resort ever 
Like I might, I put all of my, my, my love and money into my house. Right. I want that to be the place I'd rather be. Yeah. There's the no stronghold. Yeah. yeah it's like there's no hotel. There's no place on earth that's better than home. And I love that. And so that's one of the things I would like to do as my career grows is to pour into my home. So home can be that place. Yeah. yeah. Was it intimidating acting with him to begin with, or had you known him for a long time? Yeah, well, I knew him before because uh, I hired him. So I was a producer first. The first show we did together um, was uh, Tiny Plastic Men, uh, and so we hired him there. And so in that scenario, it was different. You know, I mean, that was me and his agent, who's now my agent now, Nigel McCoskey. Uh, we worked together, and so it was a little bit more of a business relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't fanboy Jesse, you know. Yeah. So, so then when I ended up working with him, we already had a pretty good relationship, which is nice. I already worked with his son, so it was pretty comfortable. Yeah. Okay, and. Of course, now this takes us kind of, you know, we're jumped all over the place, but we're getting into sort of more recent territory of, of the Make It Awkward campaign. And, and most people know this story, but just can you give us a quick yeah, context here? Yeah, I was shooting a PSA, a little public service announcement downtown Edmonton. Um, and in between takes, it was, a, it was a commercial actually about how great our downtown is. Uh, in between, irony. Yeah, the irony. In between takes, the car pulls up and starts screaming racial slurs. Yeah. At me. Uh, I walk up to the car, uh, open the door. Not saying anyone should do that, but it just happened. I opened the door and I uh, just had a discussion with them and asked them why they thought that was uh, appropriate. Why they said it, they denied saying it, slammed the door, spit, said it again. Right. Um, st- story was uh, caught on video and then we shared it. And, you know, went, as they say, it went viral. Uh, and after that, it kind of just disrupted the way that we have to deal with discrimination. You know, normally just get angry. Or say nothing. Right. You know, you get angry, nothing happens. It's just two people fighting and yelling in a horrible day. Say nothing, you go home and you feel bad about it, and you didn't even do anything, and you felt like you should have stood up for yourself. Right. But instead, we started with asking questions about why. And this thing grew into a platform uh, called Make It Awkward. My wife and I uh, founded it, and, you know, a lot of speaking, giving voices to marginalized communities that don't necessarily have them. Um, and now we've, you know, parlayed that into a, uh, an event that we'll do every year. Uh, which is a summit. We're going to bring in 30 plus speakers and presenters to come teach what they know to our wonderful city. And at the end of the day, it was taking a, an ugly situation and turning it into something uh, bigger than myself and bigger uh, and something that we can be proud of as a city because the city really rallied right. about it not being who they are. Right. Right. And that was really neat. And so there was a lot of momentum that was there and we wanted to use it. And so that people like little Indiana here don't have to walk down the street and worry about stuff like that. Why is it so difficult for people to make it awkward, to have that reaction that's in the middle, um, sort of unemotional, just like curious way versus like nothing and everything? Uh, well, I mean, I think, you know, the emotional reaction is that's that's our normal thing. You right. know, it's a fight or flight. Those are those two, right? Yeah. So you either leave, do nothing, or you, you fight. And do you think that typically comes down to sizing the other person up and determining your chances? Um... I mean, I guess that'd be one aspect of it. Another aspect is to just like how confident you are in situations or mm-hmm. how, how emotional you are. Sometimes you don't even care, right? right. I mean, how many friends you have behind ex- you. All those yeah. pieces. But the other piece too is it's, <clears throat> it rarely do we, do we really think about like why somebody would feel that way? Like mm-hmm. what, how did they get to this position that that's how they feel like they need to talk to somebody? I mean, asking those questions and starting to try to deconstruct what that reality is and you know god forbid actually have some empathy for who is normally portrayed as the villain right you know my 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 dad just told me a story where he uh he got cut off in a parking lot and uh, this guy got out of the car they're both standing he was swearing at him yelling at him uh and my dad just just stood there very kind amazingly loving man he went into tim hortons came back out and said hey 
you must be having a horrible day because I didn't do anything for right. sure. Yeah. So here's a gift card of Timmy's. Uh, hopefully your day will turn around. Right. Uh, of course, at that second, it turns into apologies and tears. Um, but but it, and I know obviously some of this comes like I, I get all this stuff from my dad for right. sure a lot of it. But that idea of how quickly instead of being so upset, just like you said before, how he's talking about you, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's about him. And when you can take that second uh, and ask start asking questions, it. Just all of the hate starts to deconstruct and it falls by, it just falls apart. Mm-hmm. Not every time and not always as instant as that. But that idea of open discussion and continuing the conversation going is doing wonders uh, for my life and a lot of other people. Right. And it's it's kind of the same vein as you know, nonviolent protests, right? right? Like yeah. it's kill them with kindness, kill them with love, you know, don't fire back in kind. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, what is it about awkwardness that we want to avoid? Because really, when you look at it in terms of like, physical danger awkward you're in no danger when you're awkward like fear is bad for us you know um being sad we don't like Mm -hmm. you know but those are all like really like physically could be dangerous emotions but there's no danger when it comes to awkwardness yet we still we still avoid it at all costs like we we will we will not have the tough conversations even with family that has nothing to do with discrimination or race it's just a little interaction thing like but we avoid it i think a lot of it has to do with the power of our own social circles Mm -hmm. and how important like our role and uh, the hierarchy of our social scenarios look so like in the event of you know a lot of you know young people that i talk to in junior high and high schools who want to call out their friends ought not to do anything because they don't want their friends not to like them they don't want their themselves to be ostracized uh and be on the outside of said social group right i'm not saying that that happens but i think that's the fear that happens when you go against the grain we're so um like creatures of habit in everything we do right i mean it, it always takes someone to be very courageous uh, and, and and to try something new and and to, to step out of the norm, but then the next the next most important piece of other person who comes with them, and then it becomes this new thing that right. we're doing. So you know, doing new stuff has always been hard, humanity wise. Mm-hmm. Change has never been easy, without a doubt, too. But you know, a change maker is useless without someone else courageous saying, "I'm going to join you." Right. So uh, you know, why is it weird and hard? Because it's that's what we do as humans. We don't like to do things that are different than what we're doing we're creatures of habit every day yeah just trying to change habits is what we're doing does the level of awkwardness get ramped up when you've got more people observing the situation um you know i guess i mean all these things they differ i mean we we really talk about three different ways of making it awkward making it awkward in public Mm -hmm. uh like let's say you're on a train or on a bus you know and a lot of people worry about safety in those situations like what i don't know what this guy's going to do and for us we say don't worry about that person if if one person is being uh discriminatory to another person to the victim Put all of your attention on the victim. Right. Go befriend the victim. Talk to them. Tell them don't worry about it. Have other people do the same. Then now all of a sudden where you had one person making everyone feel awkward, now you have this whole group and this other one person's talking to nobody. You just change the power structure there, right? Interesting. Um, if we're talking about it like at home and family, that's where you ask questions why. Like, hey, uh, racist Uncle Jim. If your name's Jim, I'm sorry, and I'm not saying you're racist. It was just a random name. Everyone's got a racist her. uncle, right? All right. Yeah. Um, you know, like, you, I don't know if you noticed, but the whole... The whole vibe of the room changed a little bit here when he said that. Uh, I'm just going to ask you why you thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. Is the floor still yours? Yeah. Then you'll say something funny again. No, I still don't get it. And you just let them have the floor. Because, I mean, yeah. they wanted it anyway. Yeah. Just like any comedian, you know, you, mm-hmm. you scratch it off the set list. It's, yeah. no fun. it's not funny anymore. And everyone knows that they should say something. Everyone feels that. Feel it. It's inside, a feel. Right? It's yes. a guttural yes. response. Yes. But it's, it's that resistance to doing the thing. You, and it's the same with anything. Like, I don't know if you've read uh, The War of Art. 
yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. But it's that same resistance that stops us from always doing the thing that we need to do the most. Oh, and it's it, 100% that's the case. And that same feeling is that same feeling when you're nervous to, let's say, public speak or you want to try a thing. And over and over, every high thinker or motivational book or person who's done some stuff will tell you on the other side of that feeling is the most amazing stuff you've ever seen. Right. Everywhere. So that idea of feeling I should say something, by the way, on the other side of it, it's not altruism. I feel way better when I do it. Mm-hmm. It feels amazing. And you're like, and people are proud. Like, hey, I did it. I made it awkward. I'm like, yeah. and then it becomes <laughs> a little bit more like there are so many texts and emails I get yeah. from that. Like, Jesse, I made it awkward today. You want to hear this? Of course I want to hear the story. <laughs> tell it to me and tell everybody. Yeah. Um, but it does feel good. You know what I mean? I, and there's nothing wrong with that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think, you know, just on the other side of that feeling, that feeling is consistent. And so is what's on the other side. Mm-hmm. It's always been good. Yeah. Is it a positive feedback loop to have started something that the more it happens, the more work that you put into it and the bigger it grows, the more rewarding it is? Oh man, I wish I could just say yes. Yeah. But I feel like with anything, uh, you know, people love to build stuff up and people love to tear things down. We love we love seeing champions so, so that underdogs can beat them. This is what we do as humans again. So I've definitely seen both sides of this, you know, the idea of where uh, it's a lot of support, but I've also seen the other side where there's a lot of, now that you've made something, let me see what I can do to tear it apart, tell you how it's bad, what's wrong with it. Um, and so that uh, other aspect is, is a difficult thing, but it's also, it's not about me. It's about how, it's how a thing happens. Right. So we're trying to stay focused on it. But it's also interesting too, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I think underlying bias that people don't even notice when they when they talk to me about. Well, Andy, I'm just gonna. This is this is a really important part. <laughs> when people talk the resistance, yes, the most exactly. Thing, there's always a resistance to it. So when people, you know, they 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 there's all these bias or assumptions, and I saw a lot of them. Like you know, you, you, it must be a scam, or you're trying to steal money, or you're trying to like convince people to give you trust. All this stuff. Mm-hmm. I've, doesn't happen when you don't look like me. Right. This is a reality of it. You know what I mean? This idea of mistrusting uh, visible minorities, specifically black men, mm-hmm. is a thing that occurs. And I've been seeing, you know, a lot of that, which is quite unfortunate. But uh, the amount of of, uh, uh, of accusations and finger pointing and how it looks has been very interesting. So right. I'll say this: it's been amazing. Yeah. There's so much more support than there is dissenters. But at the same time, uh, it's very clear to see where it's coming from yeah. uh, and why it's happening. It's not going to stop me. Haters going to hate. Haters going to hate. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, and I'll be the first to admit that I, you know, have no firsthand experience with racism and, and grew up in, you know, that role of never really being exposed to it. Right. Is there ever a thing as reverse racism where someone is just being so overtly polite or so overtly like respectful? You're like, all right, is this an act? Like, man, like relax. Like, yeah, yeah, know. yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. I mean, that idea of reverse racism and then that, uh, that example you gave I wouldn't even put those in the two into the same category okay like I mean like some people talk to me about reverse racism in the sense of I like, think that's minor- a different term yeah yeah right yeah. yeah like so like minorities that are uh, that you know like a black person saying I hate white people and right. calling them names and things yeah. like that and there, you know there's some arguments on is it racism or isn't racism and racism being a power structure of mm-hmm. systems that's set up to actually like adversely affect a group of individuals so for example if one black guy is saying I hate white people does that ultimately affect how white people will be able to operate in today's world and usually the answer is no right again semantics uh, you know being a jerk to someone is being a jerk to someone that's one thing yeah. so I, I would try not to get into that argument of if it is a racism or a reverse racism right. um, but 
or is it racism or just being an asshole? Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So I mean, racism is a structure. Yeah. Is that's what that's why it's so destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but being a prejudiced jerk is just stop right. that <laughs> across the board. You can't, yeah, you can't lump the whole group. No, in, right? yeah, yeah. Well, it's like the Oilers just down in Vegas. Yeah, there was, yeah. These, did you see this article? I did. Someone I did. wrote about the you know these oil, the all Oilers fans are are drunk jerks. Yeah, and, that's and, right. And in reality, you read the letter and it it's happens like four to people. be like four people around this group of people. That's right. Through yeah. the course of the night, which like yeah, we like our beer, we like our hobby. Yeah. yeah. And it's Vegas, yeah. the first game in Vegas. Yeah. What do you think people are going to do? Uh, yeah, I mean, I hear you, but as it turns out, what do you think people are going to do? Not that, because more than 95% of them didn't, yeah. right? So really, only a few of them did. And right. it was an opinion column, too. So before, like, everyone sometimes gets really messed up and upset about uh, things that are in the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, opinion columns are just that. It was a point of view from someone going down there, and that was what their point of view was. Mm-hmm. And so I think as long as we read it with an understanding of what it is and see who's the author <laughs> and what's going on, uh, you can take it with a little grain of salt. Mm-hmm. I've been on that bad end of many opinion columns as well. Yeah. Um, some people have agendas. Some people just see it from one. Yeah. Actually, that's perfect. Our life is an opinion column, right? So as, <laughs> mu- like as much as yeah. we want to say, like, this is how it is. Yeah. All we're doing is writing opinion columns of our life, mm-hmm. right? So we should obviously be quite aware that maybe I'm just seeing it from this one tunnel, and yeah. there's real, there's probably a really good chance that 95% of it could be wrong, right? So, but instead of talking about what you are, what you're doing, just do, yeah, just do things, yeah. and let the yeah. actions speak louder than the words. That's right. Yeah, That's yeah. what you know. The the people who seem to say what they're going to do the most are the ones who never do it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So run us through what makes it awkward. Whoa. He just, uh, he well, first of all, I just got to say, it's super impressive. You still have VHSs. Yeah, well, they're one of his favorite toys. Yeah. Uh, and I do have them. That's what they're good for now. I also like this. So this is like my little bit of a library that we're sitting in here uh-huh. in our dining room. And I like to keep like some random weird, like crazy things like stuff from the pop shop, a, a disco bell. I got a, a breast implant. Yeah. Uh, just, Wait, which one's that? This right, yeah, right here. That's a real breast implant? Yeah, it's a real breast implant. That's a good size. Uh, so then over there, those skulls over here. So I have two of my best friends are surgeons. Yeah. And so uh, like when they're learning how to do uh, otolaryngology, with your, uh, ENT uh, training, they have to do this stuff and be able to... So they gave me all of their toys, of training toys. It's amazing. It's lots of junk, and, but not junk. You know, it's cool and cool stuff. Yeah, it's, hey. a, it's like a craft museum. That's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so that's why I have VHS, and that's why uh, Andy's throwing them. He's like, these are useless. They're outdated. <laughs> Get rid of them. Get rid they're of taking them. up space. <laughs> uh, records, those are cool. Those are vintage. VHS are not cool and vintage. No, yet. Not yet. No. Oh, he probably loves those. I think I've never... This is the first time that my youngest son has held a breast implant. Oh, it's a little heavy. <laughs> they're not all like that. Don't set your expectations too high. <laughs> Awesome. Um, so yeah, run us through the Make It Awkward Summit. What what's going on? The dates? Uh, yeah, all the, so all the things people need to know. February first to third, it is at the Westin. Uh, we'll have over thirty different presenters and performers. Uh, day one, we start off with Sachi Cool. She's coming in. She will be our first keynote, and uh, she will be very. She'll be disrupting the audience of a good three or four hundred people there. Followed by uh, a musical performance uh, from Mr. Smith and Mila. Mila is a. Uh, you might not know, but some people will. Uh, 702 is a band, uh, all-girls band from the 90s, and they sang a song, Where My Girls At? 
from the front to back, and if you're feeling that, oh yeah, I know this That's song. The, I knew it. That's right. Okay, so she'll be there performing that night. Yeah. Uh, Thursday uh, on Friday, we have uh, Jane Elliott, which is gonna be great. Jane Elliott's been on uh, Oprah numerous times. She does the brown eye, blue eye test. It's like a two and a half hour seminar of prejudice and racism. She's flying in from San Diego to do that. And then uh, our keynote is uh, Quentin Aaron from The Blind Side on our Youth Day. Uh, he'll be there on Saturday. Concert. We got a comedy show. Um, and then workshops, presentations, food, and just two and a half days of amazing learning with some of the best people in North America. Fun learning and reality. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? It could be cool and fun to get better and grow. It doesn't have to be like, mm-hmm, soapboxy learning. Have a great time. Soapboxy. What kind of learning did you do? You, know, like, <laughs> you should do this. Thou shalt do that. I'm like, just calm down. Let's have a good time. Listen to good music and learn stuff. Yeah. That's, that's what we want to do. Do you still, you still face the resistance? I mean, you've done so many things. You've built up this resume and this confidence of having been successful in a lot of things. Do you, before you get up on stage, do you still get that nerve? Literally, I, whew, yes. I just spoke at the school, Greenfield. Every time I speak at a school, I want to throw up beforehand. Yeah. My armpits are sweating profusely, and I'm so nervous every time when I karaoke. When I, when, like, it doesn't matter what I do. If I, I hope you weren't like that before this podcast. Oh, for sure. Are you kidding me? Here's the thing. So it was you that threw up, not Indiana. Yeah, that's right. I threw it up through it. I up. I can't come to school. <laughs> that's the real story. No, I, I, I do because I care. I care so much. Yeah. And I really don't, like, man, I just really want to be able to articulate things in a way that make sense and can help in some way or start conversations and I don't want to waste opportunities mm-hmm. and so I get nervous about opportunities and I want to waste them not nervous because I don't want to do them right yeah that, that same feeling is the same because it used to be I don't want to do it right. but now I've changed that into I don't want to waste it yeah so I welcome it but it definitely every time there's no I'm not like anything so what are there any tactics any special tools or tricks that you use you have breathing techniques you know or is it just drawing on your past experience a little bit of both like yeah. if it's singing uh, then for sure there's breathing techniques because yeah. when I get nervous you my really throat bad experience with singing oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah talk about that a little bit because ah. that's so important it stopped you from doing something you love for five years oh man it did so, and that was a great 90s rendition that you just gave me yeah. I don't ever want you to stop singing <laughs> Yeah, so when I was uh, in college, there was a musical called The Lion King. Uh, a lot of people know that one. And okay, I know that one. Yeah, friends of mine said that they were uh, they had open auditions in Atlanta, so you have to go down there and you bring a monologue, which is just a, a scene uh, for acting, and then you also have a song. So I went down there in my mind, I was going to sing an Usher track. Um, Too quiet. Yeah, having fun with the boobs. He's got, he's got his cards, cards against humanity. Oh, it's a great <laughs> yeah, game. I can't understand. Read it. He's <laughs> and so uh, you know, I had a song in mind, and I was going to sing uh, "You Got It Bad" by Usher. Yeah. and then I had my monologue ready. So I got there and did my monologue. It was fine. And then it was time to do my song, but I couldn't use that song. You had to have one of. The, you had to have sheet music for the pianist to play, uh, and I didn't have that. So he said, "Pick one of these songs." The only one I recognized was "Somewhere Over the Rainbow," and uh, I'm more of a baritone tenor, not like super high. And so he starts playing way on the right side of the keyboard, and uh, it was like some. It's so bad, the worst ever, and they kept making me. Is that a chalkboard around here? Yeah, they're like, keep going, keep going, yeah. just being jerks about it. And then afterwards, uh, you know, they said the monologue was good, and then they said uh, to each other uh, after a little bit of silence and awkwardness, uh, "We've decided that Jesse should probably never sing again." Wow. And uh, you know, everyone's like, "Oh, funny, good one," but like, ah, oh, man, I love singing so much, and I didn't think I was the greatest singer ever made, mm-hmm. but I, I just loved it. But I was crushed. I didn't sing anymore ever, ever for like five years until. Um, until uh, Canadian Idol came along because I love Canadian Idol yeah. and American Idol 
and uh, Shannon. Tuma, as we call her, so many stories here. Tuma is my first son's mother, yeah. uh, and we call her Tuma. She's like second mom. Our families were all super tight together. <laughs> That's um, great. So Tuma said to me, she's like, "You should go slay the lion, Jesse. Go to Canadian Idol and audition and just yeah. do it. Kill Scar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, right. And so she's like, "I'll do it too." There was this thing called Media Idol where all the media across the country compete mm-hmm. she, she did it and she won I'm like oh, uh. you said I should do <laughs> it it's my thing <laughs> so then I did it after and it worked out great I ended up getting through got to like the top 30 and then I started a music career after that like I say you know I, I, uh, I did music for Michael Jackson's VH1 movie Man yeah. in the Mirror toured with my band JNS oh, I had a funk jazz band yeah. 12 piece funk jazz band and still making music now that's and, incredible yeah it's pretty fun but I still want to throw it before I carry it was, was <laughs> every time was any did you ever think as you're going through that music career was any part of that sticking it to those those um what do you call people who audition people? Oh, no, Auditioners? No, not at all. Didn't even think about them. No? No. Like, it wasn't... I was just... I kind of... I don't know. I think I needed it, too. Like, I don't know if I would have ever pushed that hard had right. I not been pulled back that far. Yeah. I might have just been, like, kind of having fun. Yeah. But because I took something that I really loved and it took someone who really right. cared about me to say, you can do it, then I'm like, I can. And I will. And it, it and you do. Yeah. That's... It was must have been really hurtful. First of all, do you think they said that because the way you look in terms of your big athletic build. No. And they're like, well, we're not, you know, this guy, oh. we can't hurt his feelings. I mean, right? that happens a lot. You told me, yeah. well, you didn't tell me, sorry. You told someone you're an artist trapped in a job's yeah. body. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. I'm, is a lot better than being the other way around. Yeah. Job yeah. trapped in an artist's body. Yeah, that's fair. That is fair. No, that's a real thing, too. I mean, I think across the board that happens to uh, people of certain stature or a certain look. There's an assumption that you you know your feelings don't get hurt, mm-hmm. of course, especially if you're a public person or a celebrity, even more so. Like people, just for the record, everybody, tweets get read. They're real people. These yeah. Hollywood stars are humans. That yeah. still like, that verified check mark doesn't yeah, make doesn't, them computers. It does not. It yeah. doesn't. And they and they're human beings, and, and words matter. So I think that definitely is a piece of it for sure. But I didn't think about them a lot as I was moving through it. It mm-hmm. was just a. Uh, it was just a catalyst. Were you were you bad or were you just was it just a bad audition because you weren't set up for success? Oh, both. Okay. I wasn't a great so, singer then, and I'm a decent singer now. Um, and the audition was also bad. Mm-hmm. The cool part about it is, as you grow and learn, you know, you stay in your own scope. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I don't. There's songs I can't sing. Right. There's songs I can sing. Well, hey, you should never say that. But no, but there's songs like <laughs> there's songs I shouldn't sing yet. Yeah. Uh, I know what my umbrella and scope look like, and I like to live. Right, Carrie. All I want for Christmas is you. you Thank you very much. You oh, sorry, that was that. a song. <laughs> when I was 13, I could rock that. Yeah, one. yeah. Well, the, the reason I asked is because you know you're a big guy. I'm six two. Yeah. I got told the other day, and some you know sometimes people don't realize that. You you know you process more emotionally. You're not you're not just like a, a jock or whatever people want to call you. But I got told that you're not kind. Right. And it was like no offense, but you're yeah. just not a kind. Like people don't think of you as kind. And that like really resonated with me because you know I want to be known as kind. So did it now? Did that? Did, how did you feel on that one? Like, I it, I felt like a little hurt to yeah. be honest. But it also I didn't I didn't get defensive. What yeah. I thought was. Okay, maybe maybe I'm not as kind as I think, right, and yeah. maybe I should start asking myself in, in more situations. You know, what would a kind person do? Yeah, in this yeah, situation? yeah, yeah. A lot of that is what happens too. It's yeah. initial. I want to be a little like if it's not a thing, yeah. but like if I were to call you a purple butterfly right now, okay, and I'm like, yo, you're such a purple butterfly. You're probably like, I'm not. So no. it's not really. A, I'm not putting yeah. a thought. It's, it's so not close far, enough. Not close yeah. enough, right? But when they are close enough, they do they do hurt a little bit. Yeah, because there's a chance I might not be as kind as I thought I was right. or vice versa, right? I know. And those are the hard ones to be able to just to take. Mm-hmm. 
doesn't matter how they gave it to you. Even if they give it to you in an aggressive, mean way, does not mean there's not truth in it. Right. They're maybe not just good at doing the truth part of it. Right. So it is, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's, that happens a lot. I try my best to try and just initial emotion, put it away. There's something <laughs> there. There's a reason that yeah. was said. Yeah. Yeah. And their, their framework, their context mm-hmm. for delivering it that way. Yeah. You don't understand either. They yeah. could have had a really bad day. Exactly. They could have listened to 50 other like bad singers yeah. before you. you or know? like like 80 horrible podcasts before this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hopefully this is an 81. <laughs> what do you got them watching there? Uh, Moana. This is, I think, the 986th time we've watched this show. Yeah, almost had a thousand. And Moana is uh, one of the best kid shows ever. It's so good. I haven't, a kid seen, show. I haven't seen it yet. It's the be- best Disney show I've, I've ever right? seen. And it's just about uh, a, a girl following her passion, doing what she's intended to do, even against all odds that people say they shouldn't, even the people care about her most. Mm-hmm. And Indy loves it, and hopefully it resonates with them. And it's got The Rock in it, which is totally awesome. Yeah, it's right? totally awesome, yeah. <laughs> we saw Jum- Jumanji too as well. Oh, I just so saw it. Funny. So good. Don't cry, don't cry. So, yeah. Ke- and Kevin Hart. So Kevin Hart, yeah. you're working with him? I just finished working with him. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know what? You I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. He's great to work with. This was you know what? I'll tell you something, Jesse. You want to know something? I'll tell you something. Here's the thing. Okay, Kevin was, he was super fun to work with. I is he like that in real life? Yeah, he is. His oh, cadence is yeah, his cadence is like this. This is what he does. I mean, this is how he speaks every time he talks. You want to know what it is? This is what it is. Uh, so I, worked with, I explode when I have cake. Yeah, that's right. I eat cake. I explode. Uh, I worked with him on a TV show called What the Fit uh, last summer in, uh, in LA. It comes out this month sometime. Uh, and it was like a reality fitness comedy show where I brought one of my other companies, Flow Power, which is a uh, fitness program where you just use your body, uh, no weights, nothing like that. And then Flow Power Daddy and Me is where you use your kids as implements. That's <laughs> simple. <laughs> yeah, so you know, like uh, sometimes I use Kevin Hart and sometimes I use babies. Pretty much really fun. Amazing. These, yeah, so that, <laughs> that should be out before the end of the month. Uh, on his YouTube channel. So on Kevin his YouTube, got a YouTube channel? channel yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, yeah. make sure we tune in. Um, last question I want to ask, and then kind of a two-part question. What what family members made the biggest impact on you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say my grandfather, for sure. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of uh, the lessons that I got through him, and not strict just from conversations with him, but just from him as a man, but then him as how other people spoke of him. Yeah. Um, and then... And then I have to take the next one as my actual family, like all of them, my brother, mom, my dad, my sister, and my brother. Um, and I can see where I got so much and what and where I have so much to learn from mm-hmm. still. Like my dad and his, just his ease of temperament and kindness uh, and patience is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And my mom's fearlessness when it comes to trying new stuff and arts. And then my sister's loyalty and, and, and just like, zest for like the, like the things that matter in life my brother's focus and his, his it's his focus but it's also he doesn't give out like like gratitude just or, or not gratitude but like uh, like way to go is, yeah. unless they're for real right, so there's right, like a right. desire for yeah, them from him some they, people get them from their parents if they want that that's probably my big brother is like that I was like what can I do to impress my brother I don't think I can I don't think I can impress my brother right. uh, I don't know if I've given up yet but that's it but, but all of them have kind of created those are the people that push you to consistently yeah, be better yeah, all yeah, the yeah, time yeah. throughout your life yeah that's yeah so you yeah. know my family is a, as a, as a I guess everything is a family for sure it's my yeah. grandpa and then my, my immediate core yeah that's awesome. And uh, do you see yourself as, as a role model yet? Uh, yeah, no, I do. I do. I, I have for for a while. And I think a lot of that is a, even if, even if one doesn't, to assume yourself as one really does allow you to think a lot before you do, more than you normally would. 
and the idea of like who's watching someone always yeah uh, and so those things have helped but I, I and I know I do mentor people and work with individuals and yeah yeah I like to fancy myself as a role model <laughs> mentor to some if they'll allow me to be <laughs> well you know I, I think that's a fantastic way to get to where you want to be right you know ask yourself what would this person do what yeah. would I do if I were a role model to a lot yeah, of people exactly who right. needed one right yeah, exactly and it's just it's such an easy way to sort of illuminate the path yeah 100% yeah. when you ask those questions of like or even I, if you want to be whatever that goal is what would that person do in this scenario yeah. like always just put ask it as that question and then it becomes much clearer mm-hmm. you know like I want to be an, I want to be an actor or I want to be an athlete alright what would a pro athlete do right now mm-hmm. probably not watch Netflix probably be training yeah. Yeah. Probably, or probably not go out for beers right? I mean all of a sudden each time you'd be like nah, I yeah. guess it's not that crazy how to get there yeah. or if yeah. you want to be a comedian maybe the answer is yes I do want to go out for beers with my buddies yeah. they're my best material exactly <laughs> That's right. or sit in my basement depressed sorry <laughs> there's so many dark 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 inside <laughs> we won't go down that road uh, right now but uh you're also one of the best multitaskers i've ever seen for those uh tuning in on the audio obviously jesse's got his son on his lap with the phone in hand bouncing him the kid is practically pacified oh no he's looking at hi indiana hey do you want to say something you want to say the hi to the audience oh nope he just wants more no just more alright cool alright well I'll let you get back to your day Jesse thanks so much for this really yeah. appreciate it thanks for having me on I had a good time alright we'll see you next time take it easy guys thanks so much for listening hope you enjoyed make sure to check out the summit this weekend back in Edmonton next week look forward to seeing your faces